very warm welcome to uh, all of you on this um, rather miserable um, Saturday afternoon. But um, I think our spirits are likely to be lifted um, because we have uh, two very um, special authors with us for this session of the LSE Literary Festival. One of the most exciting developments, I think, in recent years for those of us who like to read work produced by subcontinental authors on subcontinental themes is the emergence of a new generation of writers who have been producing very exciting work on some of the most uh, contentious issues um, in the subcontinent's present and recent past. And we are extremely lucky to have with us today two examples of uh, such uh, writers. And uh, I'd like to just introduce them briefly. Uh, my name is Sean Travos, by the way, as you can see. I'm a professor of um, international and comparative politics here at the LSC. Um, I have uh, with me, to my immediate left, Tahanima uh, Anam, uh, who many of you have surely heard of. She is the author of uh, an absolutely acclaimed, award-winning first novel, uh, A Golden Age, set uh, during 1971 in uh, the Bangladesh uh, War of Independence that was published uh, just a few years ago. Um, and she has a sequel coming out to A Golden Age uh, fairly soon, you know, later this year itself, in 2011. So prolific, you know, not just uh, um, not just successful in other ways, called um, The Good Muslim. Um, and over there, um, we are very pleased to have uh, Mirza Wahid, um, who works as an editor at the BBC Urdu service in his professional capacity, but is just about to publish, um, nearly as we speak, his first novel, which I've also had the good fortune and pleasure of reading, like uh, Tahmina's uh, A Golden Age. Mirza's novel is called uh, The Collaborator, <laughs> and uh, <coughs> it's set uh, in uh, the at the other end of the subcontinent, if you will, uh, in Kashmir. And uh, more precisely, it, uh, it depicts life in a rural area of the Kashmir Valley, close to the line of control, or the LOC. Around 1993, that is, around the time of the peak of the homegrown Kashmir insurgency, and counter-insurgency. Um, speaking for myself, you know, I was just you know, fascinated to have the opportunity to chair a session with these two people. Um, I happen to be uh, a Bengali, albeit from the western part of Bengal, from the city of Calcutta. And uh, uh, I suspect somewhat like the Hamima, perhaps not to the same extent, um, I've uh, grown up uh, hearing stories in the 1970s, 1980s, of the Bangladesh War. Um, one of my very earliest childhood memories, although it's a, it's a very, very hazy memory because I was very small at the time, is of December 1971, 
when I remember there was something called a blackout, you know, um, just to, um, as a precaution against a possible air raid uh, during the Bangladesh war of December 1971. And I vaguely remember being quite excited by, by this, you know, that we, have, we all had to shut off our lights and, and for a very small kid, you know, it was, a, it was quite an unusual experience and I remember that um, even today. Um, so, I, you know, as a, as a Bengali from Calcutta, I can relate you know, very readily to Karina's um, work and uh, appreciate its uh, qualities. Um, however, I've never done any scholarly work on, uh, on Bangladesh, um, or indeed until now on uh, Bengal more generally. Um, but I have done uh, quite a bit of work in my professional capacity on Kashmir and uh, the Kashmir conflict. So uh, as I was telling Mirza um, before we came here, um, I could relate very readily to his work as well. And uh, in fact, I know of uh, locales very similar to his, um, you know, depicted in the collaborator. Uh, what, you know, it reminded me of uh, a certain, certain areas near the line of control in northwestern part of the Kashmir Valley in the Kupwara district, um, where I've s actually seen you know, similar characters and similar situations uh, that uh, Mirza writes about in his first novel. Um, so that's you know, by way of introducing um, our two guests uh, today. Um, I thought that we might you know, roughly follow this format you know, after I finish, which I will in a minute, um, Tahmina and Mirza will uh, speak a little about uh, you know, the motivations of their own work, um, you know, brief, brief comments, a few minutes each from each of them. And then I thought that we would structure it as a conversation of sorts, not just between the three of, among the three of us, but uh, involving you as well, because um, I'm sure that uh, many people in the audience would uh, like to um, ask questions and make comments, so I would like to make it you know, as uh, participatory as, uh, as possible. Um, and just one last comment is that I thought we might make the central thread of this discussion the relationship between fiction, or at least quote-unquote fiction, um, because both Tahmima and Mirza are, are novelists, They've written well, works of fiction, but based on <coughs> on very closely um, on actual events and the lived experiences of uh, real people, whether it's uh, in um, in eastern Bengal, in, in one end of the subcontinent, or in Kashmir, uh, almost at the other end of the subcontinent. Um, as a so, I thought we might make that relationship between quote-unquote fiction and quote-unquote reality, perhaps the central thread of the discussion, if we can, because um, you know, I happen to be a quote-unquote non-fiction writer on some of the same themes, so this greatly interests me, the relationship between reality and fiction, uh, especially when fiction so closely follows uh, actual events and the lived experiences of real people. Um, and this is also purpose, uh, a central purpose of the LSE Literary Festival, which is now in its third year, um, to explore the connections between 
fiction writing and the social sciences, uh, if you will. So, okay, I think I've spoken enough. Uh, now it's over to Nima to talk briefly about her work, her two, her two novels, and then over to Mirza to talk about uh, his novel, The Collaborator. Hi, can you hear me? Oh, wow, this mic works really well. Um, thank you all so much for coming. Um, you're obviously not cricket fans. <laughs> I was a bit worried that uh, we wouldn't really get an audience because everybody would be watching the match. And I was actually quite relieved to be able to get away from the thrashing that my team was <laughs> um, getting from the Indian team. So here I am. Um, and it's a thrill to be here uh, with Professor Bosch and with Mirza Wahid. Um, I've been reading Mirza Wahid's book and um, I urge you all to read it because one of the really great things about it is that its view of violence, I mean, the book is poetic and unflinching at the same time. And I think as a writer, that's something I really admire. Um, sometimes um, in, the, in the interest of like lyricism and, and aesthetic beauty, you want to turn your eye away from the really harsh kind of realities. And he hasn't done that. And yet he's managed to make the book read like a real work of literary fiction at the same time. So I haven't finished it yet, but um, I'm already a big fan. So it's great to be here. Um, I'll just say a little bit about uh, my first novel, A Golden Age. I started the research for this novel when I was an academic. I was an anthropologist. I was doing a PhD in social anthropology. And um, I'd grown up listening to stories about this war that my parents and many people in my family had been a part of. And I thought, well, I want to know more about this war. So I went to Bangladesh. And I traveled all over the country. And I met people who, in various ways, had participated in this war, whether as guerrilla fighters or you know, student politicians, um, right through to people in the villages who fought off the Pakistan army with kind of homemade weapons, um, or, in fact, smuggled arms to the front lines which was one of, the, one of the wonderful uses of the burqa in 1971, was women sort of smuggling arms, hiding them under their burqas. Um, so I met all of these people, and I was going to write a kind of social history or oral history of the war. And instead, I decided to write a novel. Um, <clears throat> so this is a decision that I am really happy that I made, although it created its own problems. Part of the reason is because um, I wasn't a very good academic because, as you all probably know, probably most of you are academics, it requires a kind of dedication to what actually happened that I wasn't really willing to stick to or my, I didn't want to stick to. And it's not that I wanted to make up things that didn't happen, but somehow there was the space between what people were telling me um, and my imagination that I felt that I was reaching for a kind of empathetic truth that I may or may not have reached. But it was that desire, that longing to reach that empathetic truth that really drove um, me and, and my curiosity about this time. So, you know, I was born after the war and I didn't see it, but it is the most important thing that's happened to my country. I mean, it's why the country exists. So I'd always longed to be a part of it. And I felt that writing a novel or even reading a novel about that time would make me feel more connected to that moment in history than any other kind of writing. So I chose to write, to write a novel. And um, in fact, as I started to write it, I realized that 
a lot of the research that I did wasn't really going to fit into the novel. And then in fact, novels are about intimacy. They're about the relationships between a few people. And you don't really need to know kind of what different people in different parts of the country were doing. You don't really need to have, I wanted, to, you know, I had this, I had this idea that I was going to write, you know, war and peace set in Bangladesh. Um, but in fact, as a writer, I was more kind of drawn to those small moments. Um, and particularly to what happens to a family or to a woman when her children go off to fight in a war. What happens to the people who are left behind? How do they cope? How do they experience the war? What are the battles that they are fighting? What's the battleground for them? And for this particular woman, and the novel is about a widow, and she has two children and they go off to fight in the war. It's about, um, it's about her war. So for her, the war is fought very much at home. So first she tries to keep the, prevent the children from going off to fight in the war. Um, and then when she realizes she can't do that, she tries to kind of participate in the war in, in small ways. And then the war comes into her house. One of her children um, brings a wounded soldier into the house. And she, he says, can you please hide this man? Um, he saved my life. So for her, it's these really small kind of acts of resistance um, that ultimately become sort of her war and her battleground. Um, and in order to do this, I relied very heavily on the story of people in my family because they were the ones who were able to tell me really small details like, you know, the fact that there was no chicken in the market, so they, you know, they didn't eat chicken for nine months. Or that eventually people became so hungry that they would sort of go and eat grass from their gardens. Um, so little things like this, which I couldn't have found in any research books, or even, in fact, meeting strangers. Um, it's difficult to get those little domestic details. So I relied very heavily on the testimony and the stories that my family told me, and particularly my grandmother. And this is where I ran into trouble, because um, my grandmother was also a widow. She raised children during the war, and she was originally from India. She was, uh, grew up in Muslim, uh, Muslim in, in Bengal, which meant that she spoke Urdu. Um, and Urdu was the language at the time of the war of the enemy, the Pakistani army, you know, came in speaking Urdu. So um, she was in this very kind of delicate place between having children who were in the war, but also being considered by some to possibly to be a possible traitor. So um, I, 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 you know, talked to her and I got a lot of stories from her. And then when I finally published the book, um, she doesn't read English. So I hired someone to go to her house every day and read. <laughs> pages of the novel to her and I called this person up a few weeks into the project and I said how's it going you know how's the reading going and she said oh I'm really sorry but it's going very slowly and I said why and she said because your grandmother keeps interrupting me and saying oh no no but I had four children not two and why has she changed my husband's name um, so that was just one of the small ways in which uh, writing a, a novel that was closely based on the lives of real people got me into trouble and, and that sort of, um, I could extrapolate into sort of other moments when people said to me, you know, that this didn't really square up with their experience. And in many, many, it often did, but sometimes it didn't. And, and those are conversations that I have had and continue to have with people in my family and with others. So I won't um, talk for too long because I know you really want to hear from Wahid and I'll, I'll turn it over to him and you know, we'll have a conversation and please um, 
come back to me with questions. I would really love Please that. Please carry on. No, no, no. <laughs> I want to hear your stories. Um, <laughs> thank you for the lovely introductions, both of you, because I, I was on a list of Pakistani writers today. Somebody called me a Pakistani writer, a big Indian newspaper, which is quite uh, funny, uh, because I'm clearly not Pakistani. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, we talk about conflict, and, and, and both these books, as Samantha said, are, are about conflict, are from conflicts. And for me, conflict is, uh, can be and is very personal. Uh, and in, you can easily trace the commencement of your imagined, imaginative life to your childhood or your teenage, if you're, especially if you're growing up in a conflict region. Um, two small innocuous uh, events like uh, you know, a security officer asks you to get off a tree in your garden because he doesn't like it. Or, or something even harsh and brutal as seeing dead bodies uh, on your, on, on, in your neighborhood. All these things, uh, they, they change you, uh, especially if you have a slightly sensitive uh, persona. Uh, they change you. They, they, they affect you in ways which uh, uh, do not change. Uh, you, you feel you're marked for life in many ways. But then you grow up, and then uh, many of those naive questions about why is this happening in my neighborhood or in my larger neighborhood, in your place, in your city, in, your, in the valley, uh, they uh, begin to become uh, more disturbing and sometimes profound questions, uh, even meditations on, on things like war and conflict. Uh, the novel came out, the, the impulse for this novel came out of uh, my personal experiences, my lived experience uh, in Kashmir. I, I grew up in Srinagar uh, by uh, the lovely Dal Lake, uh, which uh, is not there in the novel because uh, if, if you see a lot of death and brutality around you. Uh, you do not want to talk about how lovely your lake is or, or how pretty your gardens are. Um, especially if, if violence, I'm obsessed with violence, uh, you know, not, not in, uh, in terms of <laughs> inflicting it on other people, uh, but in terms of examining the nature of violence in, in conflict regions and, and, and in modern conflict, uh, the, the nature of brutality. So when I was growing up in Srinagar, we, we had this uh, small, I've said this before in India, a couple of, uh, couple of events. You have crackdowns. Crackdowns are operations that the security forces in your area uh, organize, uh, during which you're asked to leave your house early morning, and you're supposed to gather in a field uh, where you sit all day, uh, because they want to size the area. And you're also asked to walk in front of a vehicle where you're identified, you're ID'd uh, by an informer, whether this boy is a militant or not. And so uh, crackdowns uh, in the 90s were fairly common, you know, nothing extraordinary about them. They were banal, actually. It, they happened every day uh, to everyone, not, not to any particular person, to every locality in Kashmir. Um, one of the crackdowns I was in, and I was in quite a few, um, we were called, there's a message on the loudspeaker in the morning from your mosque that please gather in this field, uh, otherwise, you know, uh, you will be uh, yeah, treated very harshly. And so we walk in this field and uh, there had been an encounter or battle the previous night. We'd heard gunshots, but that's again fairly common, so you dismiss them, yes, in another, another battle. But as we're walking into this field, uh, there were dead bodies, uh, you know, on your left. Uh, and I was 16, 17 perhaps, and you're walking and you're not supposed to stop because that's silly, that's dangerous, you can't do anything. And, and then you sit there all day and then there are these bodies uh, at the end of the field. 
Um, and I remember one of them was probably still alive. And he asked for water as I was walking. Or I remember this as this person asking for water. I cannot completely sort of remember what happened. Now, this is not an extraordinary sort of uh, event in, in Kashmir in the 90s. Uh, it's fairly uh, common. You're supposed to act very normal uh, and behave. But it affected me in, in, in more ways than one. Uh, it, uh, that, that image. Haunted is a bad word, but that's what happened. It haunted me for 20 years. And the impulse, I was talking about the novel, uh, came from that event in, in some uh, measure. I uh, then imagined uh, a similar situation uh, in, on the border, because one of the central questions uh, for me when I was growing up was, if it is so brutal in the city, in your urban space uh, where you live, what must it be like uh, in the so-called far reaches in where there is no media, where you can't go. Uh, Sumantra has done a lot of research in, in, in parts of Kashmir that I haven't been to, because as a young person you can't, they don't allow you to. So the entire, uh, that, that context is imagined, however I transplanted that, that central premise uh, to the border, because I was obsessed with what must happen in, in these passes where militants are crossing into Pakistan, are crossing from Pakistan and they're getting killed every day, young boys. Um, I wanted to see those boys getting killed, uh, and I wanted to imagine what it must be like uh, to die uh, in that uh, manner, uh, and also what it must be like to kill, uh, because you know if you have armies in your modern context, what are they supposed to do? Uh, their basic job is to kill um, as many people as possible, uh, because you're checking infiltration or you're checking insurgency, and uh, the the, the sure short method of that is you know, kill as many as possible. I wanted to go beyond those things. What, what, what does it mean uh, to live in such brutal times? And uh, also what happens to such delicate things as love and friendship? And, 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 and you know, in Kashmir you have, you, you have this male bonding thing. A lot of boys grow up together, they're very, very close friends. And they do everything together. Uh, one of the uh, sub one of the small stories in the novel is these four four boys who grow up together. They sing and play and they swim and they, they listen to Bollywood songs, and uh, suddenly everything changes. It's, it becomes a brutal theatre of war, uh, extremely brutal, I must say. And then I want to examine uh, what do those boys think of it, and what happens to the one person who's left behind. The narrator of the novel is the boy who. Uh, is left behind because four of his friends cross over to Pakistan to become militants. And I, he is the central sort of moral compass, if I may say so, of the novel. Uh, and he, he then thinks and then describes what he sees in the state of war. Um, I think I've gone on far too long. Uh, yeah. We should uh, uh, carry on. Okay. Um, I think I'll just ask uh, first Prisar and then the, uh, a question each more as a way of getting the discussion started than anything else, and then uh, invite all of you to, to pitch in as you like um, and uh, join in. Um, <coughs> Mirza, the, um, your novel sort of hinges around um, a relationship, it is a relationship, uh, between uh, <coughs> a junior army officer posted you know, near the line of control uh, with uh, the task of uh, 
say so. Um, I found your novel, you know, unremittingly kind of, you know, brutal. I mean, it's well, that's why that's partly why it interested me because it's you know it's uh, it approximates the realities that I've witnessed, and uh, it was almost uh, eerie uh, to see in a work of fiction um, the brutal reality being represented uh, in that way. Um, you know, I can understand that. Uh, in uh, an infiltration-prone area near the line of control in or around 1993, um, this was the reality. And uh, could it be that perhaps your representation of it is a little too kind of black and white? Because Captain Karyan, the, the Indian Army officer, um, well, I mean, he comes across um, in a very negative light um, and uh, you know while and this is me because I'm you know I, I you know, I'm a non-fiction writer of the same same themes that what I have seen people like that you know, very close to being like that you know I've also seen um, instances of uh, you know remarkable humanity um, among the same sorts of people um, who have uh, been, you know, entrusted with this very difficult and, you know, harsh job, mm. which they sort of do for a living, so to speak. So, I mean, it's maybe it's a bit unfair to us pose the question in this way because you know you're you've written a work of fiction, you've written a novel, but uh, in terms of exploring the connection between uh, <coughs> between the reality and your you know, fictional narrative of it, I thought I would pose it because I can I can place the context, I can place the time as well. Um, but perhaps not everybody who will read your novel can do that. Um, so I thought I would you know ask you to perhaps uh, respond. I hope they do. Uh, you know, get some kind of. There are two things about this. One is uh, this character, the, the army officer. Uh, he cannot possibly have a life in, in this setting because that's what happens. They leave their lives behind. Somebody once told me that they do not even have jobs when they do this. They are on assignments. Mm -hmm. Their context and their background and their framework and everything else is left behind as elsewhere. Now, I could, as a writer, think about that and try and go beyond that. Uh, however, the narrator, this is what he sees. He is not, he does not have knowledge. He's a teenager. He sees glimpses of this person, very stark, small glimpses. And this almost uh, binary relationship with this captain, because there is the captain who has a job, who has a task. The narrator cannot know more about his life. As a writer, I could come up with a device, you know, and, and make something, and invent something, and give the reader uh, a lot more about the captain or, or this army officer. But it didn't work for me because uh, the story is, you know, the problem is, uh, the story is not about the, the humane officers in this setting. I wish I could, you know, one could sort of do that as well, but that would be, that would be a bad non-fiction book because then I'm trying to take many boxes and try and sort of write to many constituencies. Mm -hmm. As a fiction writer, as a novelist, as a person interested in literature, uh, that doesn't appeal to me. It didn't appeal to me. 
um, essentially because uh, the story of Kashmir, especially early 90s, is one of darkness and horror. And uh, as I said earlier, now I, I, could, I could say, okay, now I must also give the reader some kind of relief and talk about the Shalimar Garden and, or, or the Shikaras you know, or, or our flowers. Um, again, that didn't work. I did. I did think about those things. Somebody once told me that you know it's so. It's very grim. It's very dark. It's very brutal. Uh, this is an early manuscript, early draft. And could you throw in something about you know a love affair or, or, or a small relationship, or, or or a comic episode? And you know it it just didn't work because uh, the story is about this very brutal war. You know. I, I have actually referenced the impossibility of tender love in that setting in the small story with this girl. And I have tried to portray that it does not, it cannot go beyond a point. It cannot go beyond very feeble desires. You know, that I, this person wishes that he could spend more time with this girl. But how does he? he is, his eventual job is going uh, down into this valley, this, this lovely uh, idyllic a place which is now turned into this horrific place and, and do this captain's job. Uh, he cannot find time for, uh, you know, for love or, or, or nice things in life. Um, I'll do it in the next novel. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, I mean that, that does make sense to me. So if Captain Kalyan does have uh, any humanity, which he well might, he's had to leave it behind. Uh, and uh, I have sorry if I, I, I have and he's drinking non-stop to yeah, cope yeah, yeah, with what he has yeah, to do, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So the and I have hinted, you know, that when I uh, I don't know how successfully, but I've hinted about uh, the possibility of his life, which that he's after all human. He has a demonic job to do, you know, but he's after all human. I have hinted when he listens to songs, the same songs that these boys used to listen to. Uh, in their childhood. Towards the end of the novel, it's revealed that the person is actually, he listened to the same singer uh, that the narrator's best friend used to listen to. There's a small hint towards his life. But, uh, you know, these days publishers, they don't want to write two big, big sagas, you know, 500 page novels, so. Yeah, and, and, and from the perspective of your narrator, the, the local boy, um, who sort of becomes the captain's, um, well, Captain, come, you know, Aaron Boy, of yeah. <laughs> in a of speaking. Um, the, I mean, from you know, he's a simple, you know, village boy, and um, you know, he he doesn't yet know of the wider world. You know, perhaps he doesn't even know Shinagar, which is the biggest city, because it's uh, probably about three hours away. And uh, I can understand that to him, um, Captain Kadian in is quote-unquote India, you know, what India represents. So um, that is frightening, but but uh, true. I was actually reminded in parts of, you know, you know Franz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth, not The Wretched of the Earth proper, but those annexes, because mm -hmm. uh, Fanon was a psychologist, or a psychiatrist, you know, whatever you call it, and uh, you know, he talks about the, the psychological effects uh, of torture, not just on the tortured, but on the torturers, and I was reminded of that, classic, classic, uh, yeah. that uh, when I read your novel. Um, about uh, Bangladesh, um, actually,
actually my, my first foray in making speeches was probably in 1972 when, uh, I don't remember this, but according to my family, I used to stand up on a table like this, uh, very small, and uh, announce in, in Bengali, uh, I'm going to give a speech. And then I would, uh, you know, I would, you know, uh, 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 copy uh, Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, the leader of the Bangladesh uh, uh, independence movements in the speeches, because I would hear them all the time, probably on the radio, and I would kind of stand up on the table like about this high and make speeches. Now, in terms of, I mean, I was, of course, you know, one of the one of the most striking things about a golden age um, is uh, your uh, depiction, Tavina, of uh, human relationships. And, uh, of course, particularly the relationship between Rihanna, the, the central character of the novel, and her two children, uh, Sohel and, uh, and Maya. Um, and uh, Rihanna, of course, you know, there's a background to this, some of you know, know the story, but uh, Rihanna, you know, some years earlier, had temporarily lost her children because her husband died, she was widowed, and uh, the, the children were taken away uh, to Karachi by her uh, brother-in-law uh, brother and uh, his wife. Um, but apart from the, so she's, you know, she, she has, she regained them, and now, of course, she realizes that she might lose, you know, one or both of them uh, in the maelstrom of, you know, what's going on during those nine months in 1971. Um, well, um, it sort of ends on a relatively happy note, I guess, because they, the three of them all survive uh, the war, uh, and hundreds of thousands of others, as we know, did not survive the war. Uh, many families were destroyed. Um, and uh, so it sort of ends on a happy note, but there is loss for uh, Rehana at the same time because uh, there is a sort of a love story in it, you know, between Rihanna and somebody who's called the Major, who initially is injured in a, in a, in a guerrilla operation and ends up as uh, kind of Rihanna's, you know, Rihanna's, in Rihanna's house, you know, being ministered to, uh, he's very badly wounded and he's being uh, ministered to by her, mm -hmm. because, you know, it's not just Rihanna's children, but Rihanna's children's friends are also involved in the, in the struggle. Um, and, uh, it's sort of heartbreaking that that love story does not have a happy ending, but not everything can have a, you know, anything resembling a happy ending because the major does not survive the, the war. <coughs> I mean, he he uh, he actually you know gets well. It's more implied than uh, than explicitly stated, but he gets killed right at the fag end, you know, of the war. And another probably another one or two days, and he would have he would have survived. I was interested, Tahmina, in um, you know. The writer's graft, you know, you're, you've plotted this story, and uh, you know when and how do you decide, you know, who will survive, who will not survive, you know, this. I'm trying to get gain some, you know, private insight, if you will, <laughs> into your writerly craft. You know, um. Um, well, I think it's a combination of two things. Um, one is that. Um, you know, there there are a lot of unconscious processes that happen. You create a character and. Um, I, I remember when I first started writing the novel, um, somebody read it and said, oh, you should stop being so dutiful. And because I was writing about real people, I felt that I had to describe them very accurately, and that wasn't really working. So I had to kind of, you know, follow more of my intuition. But I think at some point in a novel, you have to do math, basically. You have to do novel math, which is like, okay, 
it's a war, some of the characters are going to live, but some of them have to die. Otherwise, it's not really going to feel like we just lived through a war. And you just have to make these sort of quite, I don't know, brutal calculations. So in my next novel, um, my, my second novel is about this brother and sister, Maya and Sohail, who have survived the war. And um, they both respond to having survived this brutal time in different ways. And for Maya, she becomes a feminist and a doctor, and she goes all around the country and kind of advocating for women's rights, and she becomes a midwife. And her brother Sohail becomes um, a very religious man. And it's the conflict between this feminist character and this deeply religious man who are very close in this war um, that becomes the, the kind of, that's the, the, the major theme of the second book. But one of the things that happens is that Sohail is, uh, because he's so committed to his faith, he neglects his son. And th that's, that's the heart of the conflict between them, is not just the fact that she doesn't think he should become very religious, but also that she doesn't agree with the way he treats his son. And I decided that in order for this to be real, his wife had to have died, <laughs> basically. So at the beginning of the book, his wife is dead. And I, I decided to do this because I thought, if, the, if this mother is allowing her son to be completely neglected and he gets sent to a madrasa where he's abused, it's not going to really work because she's going to become like that evil mother sort of character and it's not going to feel real even though maybe you know in the kind of family history that this is based on the mother was very much alive and complicit in this but you sort of make calculations like what is going to seem convincing in the context of the book and the reality of the book that that you know yeah so so you do this kind of these sorts of calculations and i decided at the end of a golden age, that I wanted Rahana's children to survive the war, um, but there had to be a sort of collateral damage. And all the people couldn't end up being happy because that isn't what happened. Families were torn apart. And in fact, Rahana's family got off quite lightly. Um, so the major was the one who had to go, unfortunately. I'm sad because I was very attached to him. And in fact, um, uh, there, you know, some people did a dramatic, they did a a, a play version of a golden age at the South Bank last summer, and the person who played the major was was a wonderful actor. And I thought, oh no, why have I killed him? He's such a great romantic <laughs> hero. Wouldn't it be wonderful if they could ride off into the sunset? But sadly, um, I had to do what I had to do. So <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good explanation. Uh, I think at this stage we might just throw it open to the audience. So please do uh, ask uh, questions to either uh, Nima or Reza or uh, both of them. Uh, um, or you. Uh, uh, yes. uh, no, I'm, I'm just a chair. You're the speaker, so I'm the chair. Um, the, the, uh, uh, we'll start here. Could you please identify yourselves and uh, just you know, then ask a question? Hi, my name's Razia Iqbal. Oh, God, this sounds very strange. Um, <coughs> my name's Razia Iqbal. Um, I haven't read either of your books, but I intend to. What I'm interested in is the relationship between fiction and journalism. You're both journalists as well. And uh, what I wanted to ask you to, to talk about, I suppose, is, is what it is that you think fiction brings to the subjects that you're writing about that that reading a newspaper article or watching a documentary doesn't or can't? Help me. Uh, you know, I, yeah, I'm a journalist by day, and uh, I think I got bored with journalism and decided to fiction. 
Uh, no, you know, Nabokov once said uh, something about uh, the simplifications of journalism. I found that phrase uh, very uh, remarkable and, and, and uh, insightful because uh, there are days uh, at a work when you know that your two-minute uh, summary of, of a story uh, cannot do justice to a story. You cannot do nuance and detail and complexity and mystery, most importantly, in, in a two-para summary of the day's events. That's one. Two, uh, journalism is formatted. You know, there are compulsions of the format, of the trade, of DRP ratings for bad TV, and and um, and you, it's stifling sometimes. I, I've 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 been a journalist for a number of years. Um, uh, you, you find it very limiting sometimes, especially uh, with regard to stories, com complex stories such as Kashmir where it's not binary, it's not black and white, there are many, many shades of grey and green and purple uh, thrown all together. And you can't do that in journalism. And being a journalist, you know, I sort of do this for a living. Uh, I work next door uh, at Bush House. Uh, you know what you're doing, uh, you know, when you publish that uh, small background. You, it's, it's meant for a, this mythical thing called global audience which doesn't exist for me. I don't know what that means. And it's meant for this sort of completely, uh, you know, you know, you're writing for this mass audience where you think that they don't know anything and they often know more than you do. And they're definitely smarter than you give them credit for. So the novel for me is, is, is a way of dealing with that complexity and, and putting, into, uh, putting in nuances and, and also going beyond what's available to you. Uh, one of the central impulses for me uh, of fiction making is this, that you want to go beyond what's available to you. You want to go beyond information. You know, at the end of the novel, there is a note which uh, mentions some statistics, you know, uh, 70,000 people dead in Kashmir. And that figure means nothing. Uh, it absolutely means nothing. It's just, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a classic BBC backgrounder that you put, uh, you know, beneath all Kashmir stories that India and Pakistan have fought three wars over Kashmir and 70,000 people have died and so on and so forth. It means nothing. Uh, the novel and fiction and literature is, is my way of, and Anima sort of will have a, uh, of going into uh, those unknown areas. My question was as much to do with the audience as well, because an audience, you know, you talk about this mythical 70,000, you know, the, the mythical audience who, who may or may not relate to 70,000 people being killed in a conflict. When you when you read a story about lots of people dying, do you have an expectation that your readership will, will, will gain something completely different? I mean, on a different level entirely when they're reading a novel? Absolutely, absolutely. That's why I wrote it. Uh, you, you do think that you're, one, you're leaving something concrete. It's there. It's not over in that uh, two-minute uh, news flash. Uh, it's there to be read and reread and critiqued and analyzed and discussed and, and thought about. And uh, for me, I actually do think that fiction should make people think. It should it should disturb and, and agitate is the word I want to use. It should it should make people think and make them listen. And and, uh, and I, I don't think journalism can do that. Journalism is important, especially for the times we live in. And I am a journalist. It's very important in terms of it's important in real time these days. Twitter. I've been following Bahrain on, on Twitter and, and Libya. 
Um, but do I remember that tweet two months down the line? Or do I remember that uh, Al Jazeera report or BBC report next year? I don't. So I may remember a uh, Hisham Mata's novel on, on, on media, uh, which I do, which I loved. Sorry. Mm -hmm. um, it's really interesting to hear you talking about fiction as giving you sort of permission or giving you the space to do something that you can't do as a journalist because I came from it from the different, uh, the other way, which is that I first wrote a novel and then I started writing journalism. And I found writing journalism quite liberating because I didn't want my novel to be too burdened with political opinion. I mean, obviously the novel is deeply political and I think that the best <coughs> novels, the ones that I love to read the most are deeply political, um, novels that have something to say. Um, but on the other hand, it's really important to maintain the integrity of, you know, the, the world that you're creating in a novel and not pierce that reality or not pierce that illusion with too much background or too much sort of, you know, people that are just standing in for the opinions of the author. So when I write journalism, it's a good way for me to get my, I say, like, get my beans out. You know, if I'm really angry about something, for instance, in Bangladesh, um, about a month ago, a young woman was flogged to death uh, on the order of a fatwa because she had committed adultery, whereas in fact she had been raped. So this woman was raped and this um, village council decided to have her and her, the man who raped her be whipped. And the man ran away and she was whipped and she died of her injuries. Now, it was really eerie because there is a section in my novel that I wrote obviously before this happened where a woman is um, accused of adultery and she's whipped. Um, but when this incident happened, my first intuition was to write a re something really angry about this, what had happened, and to say, well, look, there are all these wonderful things that are happening in Bangladesh, but this is a very, very important issue that we can't forget, that there are, um, you know, that there are still many ways in which I I there are, you know, acts of violence committed against women that go completely unpunished. And so I think writing an editorial, which I did at the time, was the best way for me to very directly engage with that, <coughs> with that moment. Um, and sure, I could put it into a novel, and, and, uh, but I wouldn't be able to be as angry. Um, it would have to be something that described that moment and allowed the reader to feel a kind of empathy for the character, but it wouldn't give me the space to really say, well, I think this is absolutely wrong and I condemn this. Um, I think novels, in a wonderful way, are much more subtle, and they they do different things. So you know, I I I I'm 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 thrilled to be a novelist, and and that's where my heart is. But I think that there is some space um, that I really you know believe in for for journalism, especially um, being able to um, have very definite and 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 strong opinions that it's a little bit harder to have in a novel. You see, we don't do opinion at the BBC. And I still want a job. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, and yeah, I've seen all your acts. <coughs> I'll come to you one by one. Yes, please go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's it. Thank you. 
a research in a research phase, uh, the, the detail level is very very uh, uncertain, and that you don't have like the possibility to have that, that detail that you want in a research, and that's why you use like the, the writing methodology to, to describe. But I have a quick question regarding that. Do, do, do you think that the ethnographic work that methodology provides it's not precisely a search for detail? It's for you. Oh, well, you can, <laughs> answer, you can answer that second question, that first question. Yeah. If you want. First question, I, I don't have a methodology apart from uh, you know, trying to write all the time. Uh, we have a day job, and then you don't have time, so you write at night, you write in the morning. And I didn't do a lot of research for this novel because uh, I wanted to sit in London and imagine everything. And there was no methodology apart from writing belligerently, desperately, all the time for the first six, eight months, mm -hmm. getting it onto paper. And uh, and you don't really, you know, uh, you don't start with premises that I'm going to do this novel as a critique of the Indian state or the Pakistani mm -hmm. state or, or, you know, or, or the state of the world, so to speak. <laughs> you just get on with it. And, and uh, I had the benefit of, of uh, as Mantra mentioned earlier, of lived experience. I did not want to ruin that by research. I don't this part of research is brilliant, it's important. I wanted to write uh, from my own experience, that's one. Two, and then imagination is, is central. Uh, to, I, I like invention. I mean, absolutely, that's why I write fiction. Uh, I, I absolutely love inventing things. And uh, that's why the novel is not set where I was born, when I, was, when I grew up. I put it somewhere else. And it was fascinating that Samantha mentioned that he's actually seen places like that, which I uh, completely invented at, in my fl flat in London. And you know, so yeah, I don't, I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, I think mm -hmm. anthropology. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I loved being an anthropologist because of the um, the texts. So ethnographies are, are the most novelistic of all the social science texts. They sometimes read like novels. Um, and I was greatly influenced by, by having been an anthropologist, by reading all these ethnographies. Um, you know, there are ones that, that are still stay in my mind, and I feel like I have the flavor and texture of those places. Um, but there, because you are limited um, by your kind of, your, your commitment to the things that you saw, um, to describing things that you saw, or 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 at the very most, tell you know recounting things that other people saw that they told you about. I mean, I felt that I, I wanted more freedom. I wanted the ability to. I mean, it's really you know what you're saying um, is that there were things that you described that someone who was there may have said, oh, that's exactly right, but you didn't actually see those things. And I had this moment. Um, so my second novel is loosely based on the life of my uncle, who was a freedom fighter in the war and then became, he's one of the leaders of the Jamaat movement in Bangladesh. Um, so a very charismatic religious leader. And I describe this moment when this character goes to meet Sheikh Mujib, who Professor Bosch was just talking about, the leader of the Bangladesh uh, independence movement. And I totally made up the whole episode, that he goes to Mujib's house and Mujib treats him like a son and he feels this kind of swell of pride at having been in this war. And I, of course, after I finished the novel, I gave this to my uncle to read and he said, oh, it was so uncanny. 
that you described that meeting that I had with Mujib. And I said, oh, but you never told me about that meeting. I just made it up. Um, but something about it was true for him. And there's such a thrill at being able to do that. And of course, one does it as a novelist with varying degrees of success um, and failure. Um, but I wanted the permission to be able to do that. And I can do that as a novelist. And I couldn't have done it as an anthropologist. So while I pay a lot of tribute to my training as an anthropologist, and I think there are really wonderful things about the discipline, um, I still wanted a form that gave me permission to make things up. So, yeah. <coughs> Just uh, <coughs> is this an exceptional case, this progression from freedom fighter to Jamaati? Or are there more like this? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's actually about um, a person who is committed to a specific ideological structure. So when he was in the war, he believed he was a Marxist and there was everything made sense and he was fighting for this country and then he couldn't cope with the disappointments of the country and religion and the book gives him a way to hold on to things and to make sense of all the things that he saw and did in that war. So I don't know that it's, you know, anthropologically true that people who are Marxist then become, you know, re very committed to their faith, but in this case, for this particular man, um, yeah, okay. that, that's I'll, the I'll sort of, that's the connection. I'll, I'll yeah. recognize the type now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, 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 you I, know the type. Yeah, I, I, idealist. Yes, exactly. Looking for absolute truths. Yes. And of one sort or the other. So if one disappoints him, mm. then he'd look for something else. Yes. Even if it's sort of the other end of the He may become a freedom fighter uh, again. Exactly. Who knows, yes. Yeah. In uh, Kashmir. The, the, uh, the lady right of the back, please. I think that um, you have many competing impulses when writing a novel, and one is to try to connect to a particular moment, or to have uh, to have an understanding of a, of of the, the time and place that you're writing about, and then there are of course the demands of the novel. And I think that um, you know some of my favorite novels are about particular historical times and places, like Chimamanda Adichie's book um, Half of a Yellow Sun. I, my entire knowledge of the Biafran conflict is based on that novel. However, you know that this author had, the, her novelistic interests w w were paramount. So I didn't ever feel that I was being lectured to. I didn't ever feel like she was trying to tell me what happened to her grandparents. I felt like she was trying to tell me a story. And obviously it was a story told with great passion. But it was also a story that was very tightly controlled. So you have to keep those things in balance. And like I said, you know, I, I try to do things and I do them with varying degrees of success and failure. So whether those balances came out right in the end is up to the reader. But my main interest was for the reader to come back having felt that they really connected with the story. And whether they learned a whole lot about the war or about what happened to my grandmother uh, was, was a kind of, you know, slightly, you know, not 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 my main, not my main ambition there. It was, you know, you read the book and you feel like, wow, this is something I really, this touched my heart. And in order to do that, I think you have to keep 
the interest of the novel, the plot, the structure, you have to keep those things in the back of your mind all the time, I think. I don't know how you feel about uh, that. Roughly the same. Yeah. The, the story is paramount. Mm -hmm. And, and you, you do not, I mean, I don't really enjoy novels that, you know, uh, that are history lessons in disguise or, or you know, you get a novel background. I once had this American editor who, who, who liked the novel, but um, he wanted me to do a, a chapter on the history of the conflict <laughs> as a background. <laughs> now, it was a legitimate question from, mm -hmm. from their point of view, you know, because uh, probably uh, not many Americans would really know or care about Kashmir. So they wanted, some, they wanted some information at the beginning. And I said, but that's not, I mean, I would write a non-fiction book then. I would write a history uh, book. Why would they do a novel? Uh, to go back to your question, uh, you do struggle with, and, and I call it, you struggle with history when you're doing a novel. Uh, you know, and uh, there's a famous line from um, uh, one of our uh, most important poets that history gets in the way of my memory, and or history gets in the way of your memory. Mm -hmm. uh, it's Aga Shahidan, and uh, you do you do notice that you feel that when you're writing that uh, you now what do you do with it? And then I think, as uh, Tamima said, uh, what is important is your is your novelistic impulse and the novelistic drive. Uh, which is what kept me going. I didn't. Uh, I am. I'm glad I didn't do that history lesson, uh, because uh, you know it's fiction and, and it's literature. And then, with regard to structure and plot and all those things, um, you don't think too much about those things. At least initially, as a debut novelist, you shouldn't. Uh, that's what worked for me. If I was, you know, to really lay this novel out on the sheet of paper and, and try to construct a house, <coughs> it wouldn't work. You, you just let the structure come through your, your story, your themes, your, your characters, and it does fall into place. Uh, one, one day you think that there is some structure to it. It's a really good question, actually, because sometimes novels do come out of people really wanting to explore their family history, which I think was, was at the heart of your question. Um, and um, you also sometimes feel when you read a book that this person really needed to write this book. It was something that was a kind of healing experience for them. Um, but again, the ones that stay with me the most, at least, are the ones where I feel like, well, that was really, that, inch, that, that became a kind of fuel, but that wasn't the whole thing. You know, that, that there was somebody trying to shape all of this passion and all of this curiosity into something that would, would you know, create a story. Yeah. You have your hand up. Uh, yeah, yes, yeah. Let's spend your time for everybody. Press the switch. Subaltern. Do you mean it in a sort of like Guy Three Spivak sense of subaltern, or as as in like soldiers no, in the war? Right. What do I think about whether they're represented in fiction? Yeah, I mean, do you think the representation which has, has been portrayed in the 
about about the Bangladesh war or about yeah. oh okay yeah. um, well I can't really comment because I haven't read all the books about 71 um, I think that most of the most of the nonfiction writing about 71 is in the form of memoirs there's two things there's memoirs of people who fought in the war and who are writing about their experiences who take a very nostalgic view of the subaltern or of the people they encountered in villages who were sort of hiding them or, or helping them in some way or who are victims or you have the kind of uh, more official narratives people writing histories then there's a very big campaign within the army of people going and finding out who the real freedom fighters were so discovering the truth so there's a kind of like uh, a surveying there's the survey literature and then there's the memoir literature and in the middle there's a little bit of fiction so I mean I mean, I suppose, if you want my comment on how the subaltern is represented, I would say mostly either as victims um, or as um, being kind of hapless, uh, you know, recipients of, of freedom or, or, or sometimes very heroically, you know, saying, oh, the, you know, the peasants were with us or the, um, I, I, when I was talking to people about the war, the, I, there were a, a one of the things that people remembered most nostalgically was that it was a moment for them to connect with people beyond their social class. So to say, oh, well, I fought in the war, I'm a middle class person, but I went into the village and I lived in this village for nine months. And that was my connection with the country. So, I mean, I don't know if I can generalize, but those are some of my comments on that. My name's Andrew White, and I'm also a journalist. There seem to be a lot of us here today. I want to come back to what Samantha was saying at the beginning, which is about how novels represent a historical truth. And I know that you're, you're not writing a history lesson, but what you are providing is in some measure a lesson in history. You're representing a historical episode or event. And I think back to the, the most profound moment of rupture and conflict in South Asia in recent times, partition in, in 1947, and the lived experience of that opposed to the high politics and the diplomacy, was captured and expressed first in novels and short stories long before it was ever the subject of social history and oral history. And people got to understand what partition meant on a personal level through those novels and stories, and to some extent cinema as well. And I wonder if you see that happening as well with both the 71 war and with that very dark period in Kashmir in the 90s. I do think so. I do. I do think. I mean, I think one of the things that fiction uh, does is is uh, illuminating a moment in time. As you said, there is. There is. You can't. You, you don't do a, a long uh, narrative of history. But uh, for, for instance, my novel it, it it portrays a moment in time in that conflict. It portrays this very very dark period, and then goes into. Uh, things that I may not find in, in uh, immediate writing, immediate journalism, or, or analysis, or, or commentaries, or backgrounds. Um, somebody, uh, in, in, I was in Kashmir, I did my first uh, reading in, in my hometown, Srinagar, and somebody walked up to me and congratulated me and said, but it's not fiction. I said, oh, there I go. I spent three and a half years of my <laughs> life writing a novel. <laughs> but what he meant, he, uh, I would like to think it was a compliment. 
And he meant that it was all so real for him because he was from my generation and he'd seen a lot of the, the violence and, 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 and the horrors of modern day conflict. And it brought him it alive for him. Uh, which is kind of not to answer your question, which is uh, which is a good thing if if it uh, creates a, a text, if it is a text that will stay in memory and, and um, you know, and bring back certain things and also illuminate certain things. I don't know how far I have succeeded with this novel, it's the first novel. Uh, fiction should also throw light on, on things. There is a, a, I mean, I've tried to lift the lid of all that darkness. Uh, in the early 90s, nobody reported anything uh, from Kashmir. Or if they did, they reported it as a, as a crime story or, or a thriller at best. I'm talking about certain sections of, of the Indian media and the Pakistani media. It wasn't even a tragedy for, for uh, the media because it was, it was sensational reportage of, you know, that is where mass militants are running away and, you know, security forces are chasing them. There are kidnaps and, you know, sensational uh, abductions and all those things. That's what the story was when I was growing up in Kashmir. And I remember this happening a number of times, a number of evenings, sitting in Srinagar at home. I said, but this is not what I am witnessing. You know what you see on national TV in the evening or the newspapers next day. You think, no, this is wrong. But we are seeing something else. And you are reporting it as a, this, this very cheap Bollywood thriller. And sorry. You know, you know. So I think the novel goes beyond that. And, and, and if it, uh, yes, I mean, there is, there is there are bits of history that, that shine, uh, and that get lit up uh, in fiction. Would you do? Yeah. I mean, I think um, one of the things that novels or fiction can do um, is that it's not just a way for people who haven't experienced something to get a little taste. So you read Wahid's novel and you think, oh, this is what it might have been like for one person in this moment. I would have never known that otherwise. I would have had no way of getting in unless I had seen a film or read a novel, you know, that kind of thing. But also for people who live through that to say, oh look, this is me. I'm in this. And it's, it's quite unusual for any other kind of media to be able to do that because novels are both specific and ge general at the same time. You know, it's, you have a mother let's say, in a golden age, people say to me, oh, you know, that's what it's like to be a mother. <laughs> or, um, and then by, by extension, oh, maybe that's what it might have been like to be a mother in a war. So you go into varying levels of specificity. Or people saying, oh, I was a mother in that war. So I'm in your novel. You know, I feel like I, 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 my, my voice is somehow, um, not that I'm claiming to represent anybody's reality, but I'm saying that's something that, that fiction can do. Um, which is difficult to do in, 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 any other, in any other way. And in fact, I would argue that fiction novels can do that slightly better than films because films are even more specific. So, you know, you might relate to a character, but they look completely different from you. Whereas in a novel, you can imagine yourself in the life of another person because you don't have a kind of visual representation of that person that's colliding with your idea of what you look like. Um, so I'm a great believer in... Um, in the novel as doing things that no other form can really do. Um, so.
so. You know, for, uh, for a long time in my teenage, I used to believe uh, that the novel is uh, one of uh, humankind's best inventions of all time. Mm -hmm. uh, a part of me still uh, hasn't that close that notion. Uh, I, I do think it's. Uh, I mean, we had stories and storytelling and story making uh, forever. Yes, we declare the death of the novel every other decade, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's still around and, and in, in good health. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to mention, you know, uh, one of the best mothers I've read in, in your book, in, in Golden Age, you know, mm -hmm. really remarkable. And, uh, and I have a chapter, and now, now I must sell both the books. <laughs> there uh, is a chapter <laughs> on mothers in my novel, and I read from it in Srinagar, and it's a you know, sad chapter mothers who are looking for milk uh, in, in times of curfew. Um, and what I hadn't expected, this is to answer your question, what happens, what's the contract with the reader? And people cried. And you don't really see people crying in readings. I, I go to a lot of readings in London and elsewhere. You know, people, you either put people to sleep or, or, or they wait for it, to get over, get for it to get over so they can go for a drink. And there were people crying in that reading. And uh, it threw me, I was overwhelmed initially, but as a novelist, I thought, okay, it's, that's not so bad. Uh, you know, somebody asked me to stop reading because he said, oh, no, it's too much. Obviously, I didn't stop because I was, <laughs> I, I was paid to read. <laughs> but, but, uh, well, um, the power of the... No Sorry, have I? No, no, I'm... I'm well, the power of the novel or the power of the short story, for that matter, because yeah. when I think of a writer on partition... Manto. Yeah, I need to think, yeah. you know, so that's Manto. I don't think of any scholar or mm -hmm. academic. Uh, Andrew, by the way, is himself the author of a documentary history of Kashmir in 1947. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the gentleman over there, yes? Yeah, there's a 
billion people in India, there's 25 odd million living outside India, and everyone has a different perception of what is India. Everyone has their own sort of India in their head. What is your, what's your India? What's your sort of, in the research you've done, in your experiences in writing this book, how has your relationship with this country changed? Mm -hmm. That is a very uh, complex question, complicated question as well. I studied in Delhi, in India, for eight years. I went to university in Delhi. Uh, fascinating time uh, in, in the Delhi University campus. Brilliant. Um, and I've traveled a bit around India. India is, I mean, I don't think I need to kind of go explain India. You can't. It's, it's fascinating. It's crazy. It's, it's bewilderingly diverse. And it's a massive country. It's a lot of people. And it's got massive contradictions as well. You know, there's, you know, uh, some of them, uh, you know, somebody recently said that how ironic that uh, there is, uh, that the British aid to India is to the tune of one billion dollars a pound, while as India has three times more billionaires than Britain. Mm -hmm. You know, so, so there you go. It's, it's such, an, uh, such a complex country. In terms of my own identity, and I think it's a very loose term, you cannot, I mean, I, I, I don't think I'll ever be able to define my identity in, in sort of tight terms. Uh, my identity has been disputed, is, dis is in dispute for the last <laughs> 60 years. So, <laughs> you know, so I'll wait. Uh, <laughs> and, but no, I did not mind being a, called a Pakistani. I found it very lazy of this journalist not to, to do a b b basic Google search. Forget research. You just put in your name in the Google search thing and you will get a bio of me. And you would find that he was born in Srinagar and studied in Delhi and so, so on and so forth. So I was annoyed at the person's laziness and also condescension towards this, oh, this group of writers, they're all Pakistani, Muhammad Hanif and somebody else in Mirza Wahid and Bashar Akbir. And there's a writer who's talking about it, which, re which to me represents what I call the Americanization of the Indian middle classes, that all these people, they, you know, this brutal homogenization of them. So if my name is Muslim, and I'm writing these days when Pakistani writing is hot, so I must be a Pakistani writer. <laughs> you know, that was my source of, you know, I love Pakistan as well. So, <laughs> so your identity will remain fluid until the resolution of until you press upon question. the governments of India and Pakistan <laughs> <laughs> to to do something. <laughs> so, um, uh, okay, yes, yeah. That's a really good question. Um, the question of what role Islam plays in Bangladesh is one that's been debated and re-debated um, over many sort of junctures in history. So in 1947, Bengal voted for Pakistan. 
and so Bengal, East Pakistan was a, was a very big reason for why Pakistan came into being in the first place. Um, but during the Bangladesh War and the years leading up to the Bangladesh War, um, the, the people of Bangladesh started emphasizing their Bengali, their ethnic and, and cultural identities over their religious identities because they were breaking away from this idea of a country of coming together purely because of religion. And this was a ridiculous country. It was a country that was one country divided by a thousand miles of India that had nothing in common other than religion. And almost immediately after this country was born, um, there was a kind of um, apartheid that took place over which side of the country was more Islamic or which people had more claims to citizenship. And so because people were kind of involved in rejecting this idea of what a country should be, this idea that a people of the same religion should be one country, um, they emphasized their kind of cultural and ethnic unity. Um, but of course, after 1971, after Bangladesh came into being, this whole question of how Islamic is Bengali culture or Bangladeshi you know, identity, um, this has been very, very debated. And I think one of the things that our political leaders really underestimated was the degree to which throughout the war and throughout the independence movement, millions and millions of people were practicing Muslims. And even though you know, they rejected political Islam, they didn't reject spiritual Islam, and, you know, I, I, I talked to these freedom fighters and they would say, well, you know, on the streets we were marching against religious unity. But every time we went into battle, all of us were saying the kalma before we went into battle because that was ingrained. That was a part of who we were. So, in fact, it's a very delicate and an interesting question. And, of course, in the international kind of global geopolitics, it's always, oh, is Bangladesh a moderate Muslim country? Or is Bangladesh veering towards fundamentalism? This is a question that is interesting to people outside of Bangladesh. But within Bangladesh, we're still asking ourselves, you know, what can we do? How can we have a democratic, egalitarian society that also takes into account the deep, you know, religiosity of the ordinary Sorry? Yes. Well, the Bangladesh government's and general population's treatment of ethnic minorities is completely shameful and is, you know, um, is the, absolutely the, the darkest thing that's happening in Bangladesh now. And if you talk about Kashmir and the Indian military um, committing these horrific war crimes, it's the same in Bangladesh, although it's never talked about and obviously on a slightly smaller scale. Um, but you know, the art—it's a comp the 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 ethnic the region the the tribal regions are heavily militarized. There are thousands of people who get disappeared. Um, you know, people who are getting killed in crossfire killings and and called terrorists and th that whole conversation is probably one that happens in every country. But certainly, that's um, a very sort of black stain on on Bangladesh on Bangladeshi history, contemporary history. Two questions, I think. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, pardon any assumptions or anything, but I just wondered I mean, your question about places and people of whom you are very close to. And I just wonder how you, you find and, and, and balance the tension between your sense of responsibility and law. 
being a novelist is that you have no, um, there's no requirement to being objective. So I don't claim to be objective about Bangladesh. I don't claim to be objective on a number of kind of political issues. Um, I think that, as, as we were talking about before, um, if you're purely driven by your political agenda, then it's difficult to be a novelist. But if you're passionate about something, a place or a time or a moment, I think it's a great uh, thing to be a novelist because no one is going to judge you for being objective. In fact, being heavily biased is a really crucial part of the equation, I think. Mm -hmm. No, an objective novel would be a very boring thing. <laughs> 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 I do think so. And, and uh, I, 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 you should be prejudiced and, yeah. and, and biased and, and, and uh, partial. Uh, when you are writing literature, obviously in good ways, you know, and, and, and so that you do a good, enthralling, engaging, disturbing, provocative novel. Uh, if I wanted to be objective, um, I don't think I would write a novel. I don't think I would write a novel. I, you know, I used to be a very bad poet, you know, in, 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 in my teen age, in college years. And uh, you know, even then, you don't. What do you? I mean, would you, would you write an objective poem, uh, which balances many things? No. No. So, uh, no. I I hope I do not end up writing an objective poem. <laughs> okay. The last question. Can we listen to that first? <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry. You are, you are creating symbols, and the more engaging your work, the more people read into these symbols. I think you clearly said the numbers are letting you to talk to the reader to assume that, that, that they, that what they're, what they're taking from there should be, should be taken as a story, as a truth. But we've talked about how for many readers it's pleasure of important expression. So the example that you had earlier the thing happened in India. In your book, someone reading your book will see India represented in the front class. Now, you've told us you can't be objective. But then again, um, if, if people are going to be engaged by your book, and they're kind of powerful, they are necessarily going to associate these What do you do? Do you just write another book? Is that, is that I write another book. Can I go back to the question of objectivity about this? You know, there is the world outside the novel, and then there is the world of the novel. Within that world, there may be certain objectivities, and 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 what is often referred to as this you know, this grammar of realism, which is a very complex uh, beast. Uh, you could uh, uh, novelist, you know, realistic fiction and a realist novel can be two different things. So within the world of the novel, you can you have to have certain kinds of consistencies, for instance, psychological consistencies and consistency of character and consistency of theme and all those things. So those can be sort of you know framed in objectivity debate. That is is the world of the novel does it hold? So in in that regard, yes, your 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 craft comes in, and I'm not very good at it because I'm just a dead novelist. She's run two. So, uh, you know, you, you think about those things. Then the question of, okay, there is this portrayal of uh, Captain, uh, you know, uh, of, of this army officer. 
And to that I always say that you have various voices in the novel. And it's impossible that all of them can be you, the author. There are characters who will speak from their... They, characters pre-exist, and they exist after the novel. I once met this great novelist, one of the greatest novelists of Urdu literature, Kurul Tan Haider. And she's arguably written the best, the greatest novel in Urdu, called Ag Kadarya, River of Fire. And uh, I asked her about, the, the novel stands millennia. And I asked her, so how do you do that? You know, and it works. You know, it, she does it brilliantly. And she said, because it's very simple. Uh, only books close and plots close. Stories never end. And, and stories pre-exist. They exist after the novel. And I have, in, in her sort of capacity as this very, very good novelist, she said she tried to encompass as much as possible in this great novel. But characters sort of, they exist. And what was I saying? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, the uh, objectivity. Mm -hmm. I, people read uh, Wahid's book and thought Indian soldiers are really brutal in Kashmir, they would probably be right. <laughs> and so I don't think there's any danger in, be in his trying to make a point or a character that may not be as rounded as some of the other characters. Um, you know, I think that there, there, you know, there is not a lot written about Kashmir. There are not a lot of novels about Kashmir. So if this Kashmiri novel has an Indian character who's kind of an ass, well, and he's horrible and we hate him, that's okay. <laughs> you know, it's okay that he's not totally three-dimensional. So you have to make choices like that as a novelist, and some choices are more politically driven than others. I didn't have any characters in my novel who were Pakistani army officers who were actually nice guys, because not a lot of novels are written about Bangladesh, and the genocide was, is largely unnoticed. And I didn't want to humanize my army, Pakistani army soldiers. And so I didn't. And if somebody comes to me and says, you didn't do justice to those army officers, I would say, well, you know, um, there were 300,000 women who were raped in the Bangladesh war. My loyalty is to them. And I don't mind saying that. So if you extrapolate from that, that Pakistani army officers in 1971 were really brutal, then I would say, fine, please, go ahead. Um, so I think... It's okay, yeah, I think, to be biased and yeah. to be opinionated and to have a political agenda. And the reader is never wrong. They're, they're always right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like well, a customer. <laughs> <laughs> on that note. Your, your, uh, on, yeah, on, your faith is touching. The, it's really touching. No, really. You um, the, um, well, we're out of time. Uh, thank you very much indeed for coming uh, to this uh, event. It certainly lifted you know, my spirits on this uh, kind of otherwise gloomy afternoon and it's almost tempted me to try my hand at fiction writing but not quite because <laughs> <laughs> I, I lack the confidence uh, but it's an inspiration to listen to uh, the two of them and um, thank you very much indeed for those excellent questions uh, one uh, announcement is that uh, I think there are copies of both uh, A Golden Age 
and the collaborator available for sale outside. And of course, um, this is an excellent opportunity for anyone who's interested to get uh, autographed copies, so feel free. <laughs> um, uh, thank you again, and uh, good evening. Thank you. Thank you very much.